1: Revelation is eschatological, and that's a really fancy word, and I hate to lay that on you, but eschatology is really nothing more than the study of last things. And it speaks of uh, things pertaining to the current, of this current age, and also Jesus Christ's millennial kingdom and beyond. That's what this book is about. It's about eschatology, the study of last things. And it contains, when we think of the apocalypse, it contains the apocalypse, But according to our modern definition of it, and we'll look at that, but it's also apocalyptic literature, which means, again, that it's speaking of things concerning the end of the world.
0: Welcome everyone to today's edition of Truth in Christ Radio. On our program today, Pastor Rob begins a study in the book of Revelation. From the onset, we are given the most important truth about the book of Revelation. This book shows us the Antichrist, it shows us God's judgment, it shows us calamity on the earth, and it shows us Mystery Babylon in vivid detail. Most of all, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to us. If we catch everything else but miss Jesus in this book, we miss the book of Revelation. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he begins this important study.
1: Uh, if you could, let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, and let's read the first three verses. Um, today, or this morning, will, may just be an introduction to this book. We may get into the three, first three verses, but I somehow doubt it significant book, a very significant book, and especially in the day and the time that we live in today. Let's read the first three verses of Revelation chapter 1. It says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John." Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near, near. As we get into this book, it's a it's a it's an incredible book. And if you think of it, the book of uh, Genesis is is the beginning and. The book of Revelation is the ending, and the, and the rest of the Bible is sort of like bookended by these two really important books. Uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings or commencement, and we find that the book of Revelation is really the book of the end, the, of speaking of end things or the consummation of all things, and it really is that. And I love the differences between. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, I think it's fairly remarkable that in Genesis we have the commencement or the beginning, the the, the origin really, of the heavens and the earth. And in the book of Revelation we see the consummation of heaven and earth. That there will be a new heaven, this current heavens and earth, all of it will be dissolved one day, the Bible tells us, in Revelation with fervent heat, and then a new heavens and a new earth will be created and where dwells righteousness, and we will be there forever. That's the eternal state for the believer. But then it goes on, also in the book of Genesis, we have the entrance of sin and the curse. And finally in Revelation, we see the end of the curse and the end of sin. In the book of Genesis, we see the the beginnings of Satan and his activities. And in the book of Revelation, which we have before us, is really the doom. We see the doom of Satan and his activities. In Genesis, we see the tree of life relinquished. When Adam and Eve, they were given access to this tree of life, but God told them to not take of the fruit. And then in Revelation, the tree of life, the tree of life is regained. It's regained in the, in the, in the new Jerusalem. That tree, Those trees will be along the river, and the tree of life will be there, and it will be regained. In Genesis, we see that death makes an entrance. After the sin of man, we see death coming in. The Bible says that in dying, they shall die because of the sin that they committed, Adam and Eve in the garden. And in Revelation, we see that death makes an exit. Finally, death and hell put to an end, cast into the sea, Are into the lake of fire, never to be influencing ever again. And we also see in Genesis how sorrow begins. We see it in Genesis 3.16, the fall of man. And then we see in Revelation how sorrow is banished. No more tears, no more crying. The book of Revelation is eschatological and that 's a really fancy word, and I hate to lay that on you, but eschatology is really nothing more than the study of last things and it speaks of uh, things pertaining to the current of this current age and also jesus christ 's millennial kingdom and beyond that 's what this book is about it 's about eschatology, the study of last things, and it contains When we think of the apocalypse, it contains the apocalypse, but according to our modern definition of it, and we'll look at that, but it's also apocalyptic literature, which means, again, that it's speaking of things concerning the end of the world. There is an end to this current world. The Bible speaks clearly of that. There is an end of this world. But those in Jesus don't have to worry, because the Bible says that there is coming a new heavens and a new earth. It's very plain in the Scripture for us. And when we think of, of the book of Revelation, it's also been called the, the Apocalypse. And the Apocalypse has really two different meanings. In our modern definition, we think of Apocalypse, and we think of the complete and final destruction of the world and the things in it. That is certainly a definition of the Apocalypse, and that's what most people think of. But the Apocalypse actually means, it comes from a, a Greek word, apokalypsis, which means to unveil or to reveal. To unveil or to reveal. That's the real meaning of the word. So we have in our culture an understanding of the apocalypse and what it really is supposed to be. The revelation of Jesus Christ is literally the apocalypsis of Jesus Christos. The unveiling of a person. And not only just of a person, but events surrounding his second coming. And that's what the apocalypse is. It's very different from the word Apocrypha," which sounds very similar, but Apocrypha" literally means "hidden." It means "hidden." And these are books of the Bible that weren't in the canon of Scripture because of they had uh, uh, the, the facts in it weren't completely right, and they didn't gel with the rest of the scripture. And even the authors were dubious. But revelation is not a dark book, even though it has some things in it that we don't understand. But it's a book of clarity. It's supposed to be a book of clarity and a book of unveiling. And when we think of all the books in the Bible, Revelation, along with the book of Genesis and the book of Daniel, they're the most attacked by the devil. They're the most attacked by liberal scholars and 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 those who hate God and hate his people. They're the most attacked books. In, the, in, in Genesis, for instance, is uh, hated. And attacked because it is the book of origins and it unequivocally and unashamedly speaks of creation by God in six literal days not using millions of years to accomplish things. No, God spoke and in and, and six 24-hour periods. He created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, all the living creatures. Is your God so small that he can't speak and make things happen? No, he's a very big God. If he spoke everything into existence, he could make anything, anything happen at any time he desires, if he so chooses. Is that the God that we serve, is it not? Do we believe it? I would encourage you to believe in who he says he is. Believe in who he says he is. But the book of Genesis is under attack, and it's hated because it makes promises. And it refutes the darling pet of our culture and the great lie of mankind. And what is that? Evolution. It does. It is the darling pet of our culture, <laughs> And the great lie of mankind. And it's also hated because God makes promise, promises to a specific group of people. in giving them a specific land. The Jews. A specific land. Through which the Savior would be born. And save the world from its sin and usher in everlasting righteous, Righteousness. And the ungodly, they hate the book of Daniel because of the pinpoint accuracy of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and the kingdoms of the world and ultimately their destruction and the setting up of Jesus Christ's kingdom in the millennium. They hate that. The devil hates that book. Very few books have been under attack like Genesis and Daniel and certainly the book of Revelation. And the ungodly hate it, uh, hate the book of Revelation because... It unveils the glory of Jesus Christ and foretells in great detail with stone-cold certainty the judgment of God upon an unbelieving and wicked world that has rejected Christ. And the ungodly hate it because in chapter 19 it speaks of the return of Christ to this earth to set up his millennial reign and it speaks of the doom of those individuals who have opposed him and rejected him all of their life. And the world that we live in now does not tolerate this kind of confidence and matter-of-fact speaking, does it? Whenever ever anybody comes up and says something in an absolute way, we're immediately hit, with, um, uh, 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 hit in the face with opposition. Because we live in a world where everything is changing and everything is liquid, everything is relative. But God says what he means and he means what he says. And I believe that. I believe there is absolute truth. And as a Christian, we need to understand that there is an absolute truth. You've got it in your lap right now. Absolute truth. That means that sin is a sin. That means that everything that he has in this book is, you can take it to the bank, you can bet your life upon it. You could bet the life of every single human being that's ever been born on it. You can bet everything. You can put in all the chips, so to speak, and say, I believe that this is the word of God. It is unequivocable. It is truth. But the world we live in doesn't tolerate that. And the world is becoming increasingly disinterested in facts and the truth. It has enjoyed being lied to, to, actually. Isn't that what uh, the Lord said to Jeremiah when Jeremiah was ministering to the, the children of Judah? What did he say in Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 30? This is what he said to them, and I think it's true of us today. He says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land of Israel, specifically. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And here's the dangerous and horrible thing. And my people love to have it so. Maybe not you specifically. I'm sure that most of us don't agree with that. But at that time, they did. The people of Judah, they, they, they love being lied to. They loved being the prophets lying to them, and they love the priests having their own power. And he goes on, he says, but what will you do in the end? That's the question that God has. What will you do in the end? And see, we're all the same. Isn't that what it says in Psalm 103? It says, he knows our frame. In other words, he understands our constitution as individuals, as people that he created. He understands our frame. He knows our constitution, but he also remembers that we are dust, (laughs) and we're kind of all the same. And maybe not you this morning, but our culture has enjoyed being lied to. They've enjoyed being told and even propagating the fallacy that there is no absolute truth, that everything is relative, and that God is dead. That's what they believe. Many of the universities are filled with professors teaching your children that you're spending lots of money to go to. They're teaching them that God is dead. Isn't that the newspaper? The New York Times in January 9th, 1966, section 8, page 146. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. God is dead in the New York Times, 1966. And no doubt they were influenced by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. You remember him. He seems to have popularized this phrase, God is dead. He used the phrase to express the idea that the Enlightenment had eliminated the possibility of the existence of God. In other words, our, the Enlightenment, the education, the, the new understanding that we have can replace God. In fact, in his uh, uh, a collection that he had written in 1882 called Gay Science, that's literally the name, or if you want the German, it's yeah, Die Frohliche Wissenschaft. For those of you who are German, you're probably going, did he pronounce that right? I think I did. But this is what he said. This is what he said in this publication. He says, God is dead, and I quote, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Those are the words of Friedrich Nietzsche coined the term God is dead, and even Time magazine in April 8th, 1966, had "Red in red on the front cover of Time magazine, Is God dead? But I can almost hear the newsboys coming through my headphones. Our God's not dead, he's surely alive, he's living. Everybody, right? right, right but our God is not dead, he's very much alive, Amen. He's alive forevermore. He he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. I love that about him. And it's interesting that even the loudest voices against God have disappeared, and yet God and his word remains. Jesus Jesus said in Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, verse verse 35 of Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And all those who have put... Uh, put God and his word on trial have been found guilty themselves and they've been sentenced. I'd like to read to you one of my favorite excerpts. One of my favorite devotionals is uh, a devotional by William McDonald called One Day at a Time. And in December 19th of his devotional, I want to read this to you. He says, the word of God is not only eternal, it is absolute Absolutely sure of fulfillment. In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus said that no one, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. A jot is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that resembles a comma or an apostrophe. A tittle is a stroke of a Hebrew letter. We might compare it to the bottom stroke of a capital E that distinguishes it from, from capital F. In other words, Jesus was saying that God's word will be fulfilled down to the minutest details. The minutest details. Julian the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor who lived in uh, AD 31 through 36, he decided that he would disprove the Bible and discredit Christianity. And the particular passage he chose to disprove was Luke chapter 21, verse 24, which says. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He began by encouraging the Jews to rebuild the temple. And according to Gibbon, in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, they went to work eagerly using even silver shovels in their extravagance and carrying the dirt in purple veils. But while they were working, they were interrupted by an earthquake and by balls of fire coming from the ground, and they had to abandon the project. Almost 600 years before Christ, Ezekiel predicted that the eastern gate of Jerusalem would be shut and that it would remain shut until the prince would come. Many Bible students understand the prince to be the Messiah, and the gate, subsequently called the Golden Gate, was closed up by Sultan Suleiman in A.D. 1543. And then in, uh, in Kaiser Wilhelm's plan to capture Jerusalem, he hoped to enter by this gate in his pride, but his hope was dashed, and the, the gate remains closed. In fact, the gate is there today. In just a few weeks, we'll be going to Israel, for those of you who are going, and you're going to see that eastern gate. And as you look at it, you have to understand that the gate that's there is not the real eastern gate. The eastern gate that's, that that was there when Jesus' day is several feet below, and they found it by accident one year when a, a gentleman was walking by and he fell into this uh, this, this tomb, really. it was a, it was an Islamic tomb, and bones were in there, and they went and they, they saw the top of the archway as they fell down into this hole. They saw the, uh, the, t- the upper part of the arch of the original gate underneath, and that is the gate that is going to be referred of. But notice he goes on and he says, Voltaire. He boasted that the Bible would be a dead book in 100 years. But when the 100 years had passed, Voltaire was dead, and his house had become headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society. (laughs) And Ingersoll made a similar boast. He said that we would have the Bible in the morgue in 15 years, and it was he, not the Bible, who went to the morgue. The Bible outlives all of its critics, and you would think that men would wake up to the fact that the Bible is God's eternal word and that it will never pass away. But then, as Jonathan Swift said, there's, no, nothing, there's none so blind as they that won't see, that won't see. So the book of Revelation is not a book that's supposed to be sealed, it's supposed to be open and read by everyone in fact, in the end, at the very end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 10, the angel speaking to John the apostle, he said to him, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. And it's interesting as we, as we embark on this book that the Lord has written concerning the gravity of the words and the prohibition of adding or subtracting anything from it. In Revelation 22, verse 19, it says this, And if anyone takes away the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That's a pretty significant statement. So we should never take anything away from the word of God, nor should we add anything to it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, In the first verse, it says this, He says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. And here it is, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Later on in the same book, chapter 12, verse 32, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Even Solomon in his Proverbs, chapter 30, verse 5, he says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And one of the wonderful things about the book of Revelation is it's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, And to those who keep it. The idea is to be obedient to it. And we see that in the very third verse of what we read this morning. You can read it. The third verse in chapter 1. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. At the very end of the book it says this again. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. If I did nothing more than read the book of Revelation to you this morning, you would all be blessed as well as I would. If I just read it from cover to cover, we would all be blessed. (laughs) The scary thing is, any other word that I speak is really a liability. God anoints His word. God's word is blessed. We get blessed by hearing it. But I have a question for you this morning, and that is, if the Lord says it's a blessing... And it's a blessing for us to hear it and to, to keep it and to read it. Why do so many pastors and even Christians stay away from it? There are many churches in the area here that won't get into this book. And I have some possible reasons for that, some possible answers to the question, why don't pastors and teachers teach this book on wholesale? Why don't they teach it? Why don't they read it? And let me give you a couple possible answers. Number one is that the devil doesn't want you to know He wants you to believe that this is not a relevant book for you. And by the way, you really can't understand it. You can't understand it. That's what the devil will want you to say. And while there are challenging things in it, there's no doubt. There's pictures and imagery and symbolism. But often, the answer is right there in the text for us.
0: I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Revelation.